Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm Lance Thurner, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Martha Few about her book, For All Humanity, Mesoamerican and Colonial Medicine in Enlightenment Guatemala, from University of Arizona Press, 2015. And this is a fascinating book about the public health initiatives of the Spanish colonial state near the end of imperial rule in Central America, and especially how different social sectors, from priests to uh, indigenous villages participated, redirected, or resisted these measures. And certainly one of the aspects that makes this book so interesting is the degree to which Professor Few has been able to discern the indigenous perspectives, actions, and subjectivities uh, from what is a very difficult archival record. So, Martha Few, welcome to the show. Great. Thank you for having me. Um, well, I, would, I was wondering if we could begin the interview with a little bit about yourself and how you came to this work and came to this project. Sure. Um, my first book was called Women Who Live Evil Lives, and it focused on uh, gendered ritual power and kind of how women were mediating difficulties in everyday life. This could be things like uh, uh, illness, um, incurable infections, problems with pregnancy and childbirth, reproduction issues. Um, and I was using Inquisition records to kind of gain insight about this and how it worked in, in the city of Santiago de Guatemala, which is the capital city of colonial Central America, primarily in the 17th century and early 18th century. These things were called sorcery, um, uh, witchcraft, pacts of the devil uh, by the church that was uh, prosecuting these and seeing these as crimes. Um, but in reality, what was going on was that women were basically just trying to deal with everyday issues of illness and, and, and problems associated with the body. And um, so that kind of got, gave me the idea to maybe uh, focus on medicine in some degree, um, to think about both official medicine, sort of colonial sanctioned medicine, as well as what was going on on the ground with male and female healers, um, uh, not just um, the official healers, but also indigenous healers known as curanderos or curanderas, um, as well as mixed race healers um, in a sort of pretty lively medical marketplace in, in 18th century uh, Central America. Yeah. Uh, and I, I suppose right before we dive too far into the book, can you just explain really quick for our listeners who might not be Latin Americans about the place of colonial Guatemala in the empire at this point in time in the late 18th century and, and uh, you know, what enlightenment intentions were for public health at this moment? I'm using the term colonial Guatemala, but really that's shorthand for the Audiencia of Guatemala, which in the late colonial period comprised a much larger geographic area, uh, one that stretched from southern Mexico um, that included uh, what's now Chiapas through um, what's now most of modern Central America. So through Guatemala, what's now El Salvador, Nicaragua and Honduras. Um, so this is a, a fairly large geographic expanse. Um, and, uh, uh, and so um, the capital of that uh, there's a number of capitals over the colonial period, but the main two capitals are Santiago de Guatemala, which is now Antigua, and um, the new capital um, was built in 1773 after a massive earthquake, um, and the capital was moved to um, what was called then Nueva Guatemala or New Guatemala, and that's today's Guatemala City. Um, and thinking about Enlightenment tensions that are going on in the 18th and early 19th centuries, um, uh, one of the things that surprised me and one of the reasons I have Enlightenment Guatemala in the 
title is that um, Guatemala was remarkably, the elites in Guatemala, medical, political, military, and other elites were remarkably engaged with um, what I call the global enlightenment, both within Central America, among different places in what's now Latin America. So in conversation with um, uh, folks in Mexico and um, the, the Caribbean, especially Cuba, as well as with um, as well as with Europe, um, these kinds of conversations um, and connections were being made through printed text. So the circulation in multiple languages of uh, books and pamphlets related to um, new ideas or medical in- innovations for tools or technologies, um, as well as um, uh, sort of paper trails of newspapers that were circulating through, published in Spain, as well as Mexico and, and Guatemala and Cuba. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, and then sort of Guatemala itself had a university starting in the late 17th century. It um, had a, a, what's called an Enlightenment Scientific Society that was called the, the, the uh, Royal. It was called the Royal Economic Society um, that had a number of meetings and um, contests to develop new innovations. They had a natural history museum and things like that. So, uh, so. One thing for me that's very interesting and I'm hoping is one of the contributions of the book is that um, thinking about colonial Central America as a place of of enlightenment cultures, but ones that are definitely in conversation with um, local ideas and regional ideas of what's going on, as well as with indigenous medical and scientific cultures, sometimes in tension with each other, sometimes in cooperation with one another. Right. Um, And so, uh, you know, in this book, uh, a lot of what you uh, are aiming to to show us readers is that what's going on in this colonial environment is in some way a prototype or it's a determinant of the kind of uh, health policies that come later. Uh, How does that really change our perspective of what's going on in this era of bourbon reforms in colonial Latin America? Yeah, I I feel like a lot of what we teach about and and write about for the bourbon reforms in colonial Central America and colonial Latin America in general tend to center on uh, political and economic reforms, kind of the more centralization of state power, um, the sending out of royal representatives or changing them around um, to tighten colonial rule, um, also different kinds of economic reforms that in some cases open up trade or um, uh, change issues related to price setting for certain key goods like mercury for mining and things like that. But we, we don't really know a lot yet. I mean, we have maybe in the last five or 10 years, but we still are working. This is an area, I think, of very fertile and active research right now, figuring out how these medical reforms um, fit in and how medical policies fit in, especially anti-epidemic campaigns. Um, And uh, this is clearly related to smallpox um, and the introduction of inoculation and later vaccination, but also um, anti-smallpox, anti-epidemic campaigns that um, weren't quite as successful. So um, what to deal with typhus outbreaks, where it's a very severe problem in, in 18th and early 19th century Central America. I didn't get a chance to touch on this in my book too much, but I hope to write about it a little later. But um, whooping cough, um, which gets called tosferina or tosputrida, which kind of means like uh, putrid cough or things like that, but definitely kind of looking at um, children's illnesses and sort of the way that people were um, trying to, to deal with this um, in this idea of um, kind of 
enlightenment culture of the fact that sort of new scientific and medical innovations can help can help people and it's not they can not only help people but it's our it's the responsibility of elites in different sectors of colonial society to to um, implement them considering that epidemics in particular have been such an important part of Latin American history, you know, historiography for such a long time. Why is it only recently that historians are looking closely at these sorts of campaigns um, to ameliorate epidemics? Yeah. And I think, um, you know, it's not that no one's looked at this before. I think there's a very deep literature for thinking about epidemics, especially in terms of demographic collapse in the first century or so after indigenous demographic collapse in the first century or so after conquest. Um, there's, there is quite a lot of very good work that I drew on about uh, medical campaigns um, in, uh, in colonial Latin America, um, including the Royal Vaccination Expedition. But one of the things I think that I hope that I've contributed uh, to this discussion, as well as I know that other folks working on this are as well, is really bringing in and taking seriously Mesoamerican medical cultures, practices, and practitioners as part of this culture of medicine that's developing in the 18th century, um, uh, and sort of sort of seeing how that is um, both a conflictive process, but also can be a cooperative process as well. And that's kind of where things get complicated, but also interesting for me. Right, and and. This- this is something that you bring up in the introduction is that, you know, we can't look at it as simply this, um, this uh, dualism between, you know, Western medicine and, and some kind of indigenous tradition. And as you described, the great uh, breadth of the uh, Audencia Guatemala at this point in time, uh, it clearly includes many different medical cultures. Uh, how did you negotiate that in, in creating this book? Yeah, that I think for me was the trickiest thing. There's a couple issues going on in thinking about medicine in the archive here. Um, One of it, which is that um, kind of when I did my first deep dive, especially into the archives in Guatemala City at the um, at the Archive of Central America, um, General Archives of Central America, um, I found an amazing amount of information on the medical campaigns themselves, on the doctors um, and other other folks that were kind of responsible for developing and implementing these policies. There's quite a number of um, medical handbooks published in Guatemala, as well as medical handbooks published in translation from other parts of the Americas and Europe about, uh, for example, smallpox inoculation and things like that. So I found that I had quite a a lot uh, of information about the campaigns themselves. But for me, what was tricky was um, trying to find places where I could identify traces of Mesoamerican indigenous medicine, gain, a, uh, you know, try to gain some evidence about what the perspective of a Mesoamerican medical practitioner was within these process, whether or not they cooperated with things um, that the campaigns wanted to impose. And also what people themselves who were in indigenous communities who were, you know, part of the, the target population of these campaigns, how they reacted and dealt with um, this. So one, so I kind of was able to do this in three ways. Um, one way was to look at these um, these handbooks that were published themselves. Some of these are actually printed. Guatemala has multiple printing presses in the 18th and early 19th century. Um, and each time a new uh, epidemic outbreak, for example, of smallpox would come up um, starting in 1780 and then 1790s for the next one and then the early 1800s for the next one, new um, new. Uh, 
smallpox manuals would be developed based on new technologies or ideas or experience from the previous one. And within that, you could find um, complaints, for example, about, you know, certain kinds of what would call would be called Indian behaviors that would be resistant to um, certain um, anti-epidemic uh, or anti-smallpox, for example, um, campaign. So bloodletting was very uh, conflictive. Mesoamerican, ha- Mesoamerican medicine has long traditional cultures of uh, bloodletting for medicinal purposes. So does Spanish and European medicine. But there were differences in who should be bloodlet when, for how long, and from what part of the body. So Looking at those kind of handbooks that were trying to guide um, the doctors who were going into the field about what to what to look out for and what to be you know to kind of protect against um, that those kinds of conflicts showed up in the manuals in ways that I didn't expect and I found that pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, Another thing that showed up um, in manuals as well as reports from doctors on the ground um, would be. Um, uh, Basically, through con- conflicts uh, in uh, when the campaigns were in communities themselves. Uh, so this the book talks a lot about the temescal, which is a ritual, a Mesoamerican ritual, kind of steam bath therapeutic place that. Um, uh, you don't really see a lot referred to in the 18th century in regular medical texts until these campaigns get into Highland Maya communities. And it turns out they're all over the place, or at least that's how they're described by colonial officials. Um, these are spaces that, um, you know, from pre-Columbian times have been important places to go for healing and uh, therapeutic um, use for all kinds of um, illnesses, but also to recover from things like childbirth and things like that. Um, and so sort of conflicts about that as well as efforts to knock down these temescalas as a way to kind of force um, indigenous peoples, to example, to go to the typhus hospital uh, would be another way that I would I would find information. And the third one would be um, that I found, and I'll just give an example of this. I was um, I was looking at um, I was working at the Wellcome Library in London, and they have quite a few materials that uh, uh, published materials uh, for colonial Guatemala that I wasn't able to find elsewhere. Interestingly, and I was reading through a handbook. Uh, it was basically a, a smallpox inoculation handbook. It was a Spanish translation of a French inoculation manual. Mm-hmm. But in the middle of that manual, I found two pages inserted by. Jose Flores. He's a he's a character. He's a, a person who comes up repeatedly in my book. He was um, uh, he was a medical professor at the university. He was also the first protomedicato, so head of the official board governing medicine and medical practice in the colonial period. And what he had done was he um, inserted in the middle uh, uh, his sort of special inoculation method tailored, what he calls it, tailored to local conditions of Maya peoples that he, you would find there. So you have this Spanish translation of a French inoculation manual published by a Guatemalan press and inserted in it is his, his new method, which involved using indigenous, um, an indigenous method of using certain kinds of local beetles crushed into a, a poultice that could be used to raise blisters and that could be cut open with scissors um, that, that he asserted would be less um, uh, scary to indigenous children who are receiving inoculation. So sort of adopting and, and, you know, using this 
this method, this indigenous method and indigenous knowledge about these medicinal beetles and how they interacted with the body, but using that as a way to kind of ease inoculation into into these indigenous communities. So those are, those are gives you kind of some sense of how to do that, um, how to find those archival traces of of indigenous medicine, and then trying to kind of put those this kind of huge source base of official medicine and those traces together in conversation. That was, I think, one of the big challenges of the book. Yeah, and I suppose in order to to begin the book off uh, on that foot, you begin with a, a large you know chapter one, which um, is about the longer history of ep- epidemics and um, reactions to ac- epidemics in colonial Guatemala. Um, why was this the most important place to start this story? Yeah, um, in some ways, I wanted to kind of come back and um, not only think about epidemics in terms of indigenous demographic collapse, but also to think, and not only to think about the death, but also to think about the survivors and kind of how surviving multiple um, epidemic outbreaks of various kinds, typhus, measles, uh, smallpox, and other diseases, um, how that might shape um, how people felt about um, about death, about child death, about how doctor, how that might have affected doctors' experience in terms of um, how they talked about and advocated for anti-epidemic campaigns. Um, and so I, I didn't want to. I wanted to kind of push past just thinking about the numbers and to to get at um, to kind of get at some of the qualitative experiences as far as I could about um, epidemics and everyday life and what that meant for how people um, kind of navigated um, their lives. And, and, and then this chapter comes to around to the uh, measles epidemic of 1769 and then smallpox in 1779 and sort of the beginning of a, a new kind of humanitarianism an enlightenment humanitarianism. Can you describe kind of, what that meant uh, to colonial officials and to colonial doctors and what they expected and believed their new mandate was? Yeah, um, I think what that what that chapter one is doing as well is is kind of and thinking about um, and thinking about the qualitative experiences that people had with epidemic death that didn't just begin and end in the 16th century, but that, of course, continued through the colonial period. Um, and often you'd see different um, epidemics inter- interacting. So you'd see measles and smallpox coming together at the same time or intersecting. Um, that experience, um, as well as sort of uh, that experience for, for colonial doctors and colonial political officials and priests, um, allowed them to kind of reflect along with the sort of enlightenment culture uh, and these ideas that um, medicine and science can help humanity. Um, this, that it, And not only can it help them, it's, it's sort of the elites, colonial elites responsibility to help um, and uh, to protect uh, human health. Um, and of course, this is within a colonial context. This is very much within uh, sort of the racial hierarchy of we need to protect, you know, Indians who can't protect themselves. We need to protect mixed race peoples and other people. Um, and so um, uh, this was a way to kind of uh, show the intersection of just respond, rather just like responding to epidemics and not really having any kind of planned or anything like that, but instead kind of taking an active um 
I guess, an active response to uh, treating epidemics, to develop campaigns, to develop a discourse that went to the with the campaigns that kind of legitimated and uh, talked, you know, put this within the, the colonial context of, yeah, we're in a we're in a, a place that is in, uh, majority indigenous Maya. Um, this is um, not only for kind of humanitarian reasons, but it's also very closely tied to um, to uh, the fact that native peoples and their labor through um, uh labor conscription laws and things like that were important um, and indeed central, especially for colonial Central America to colonial wealth. Yeah. And then, so in, in chapter two, then we get to see where, what happens kind of on the ground for the first time when, when these campaigns head out into the field. And this is considering the 19, uh, 1797 anti-typhus campaign in central West, uh, in the mountains of central West Guatemala. Could you walk us through what happens here and and what we learn from it? Sure. Um, that so this is uh, looked at this a typhus outbreak that was an on and off typhus outbreak for more than ten years, mostly in the Cuchimatana, sort of in the northern part of colonial Guatemala, which these are um, a pretty imposing mountain range um, that is located between what's now. Um, uh, uh, Chiapas and, and and Guatemala, kind of around that borderland area. This is an area that had um, very little colonial presence, not, uh, not a lot of Spanish population. The main colonial presence there were members of um, the various religious orders. Um, the, uh, of the, these are Mercedarians, Franciscans, um, and others who were working in different indigenous parishes in this area. Um, and um, ministering to these populations, but these populations also keep in mind, um, speak Maya languages, and there's some 20 Maya languages. They don't aren't necessarily um, mutually intelligible to each other. This is a, a, a landscape that is extremely mountainous with difficult weather in the best of times and difficult to travel on. And it's very, in some ways, it's very isolated from, say, colonial cities in Chiapas that are important, like San Cristobal or, or Guatemala City. But also, it's um, it's an area that the Royal Road goes through. So a lot of the trade and mail networks between Mexico, especially Chiapas and Oaxaca, and the rest of Central America kind of take place. So even though there's not a lot of colonial presence there in terms of political officials or settlers or things like that, it's an area where there's a lot of transport and movement through. So it's a very, um, it's, a, it's an interesting area in that way. Um, and so, uh, and so one of the things that um, people like Jose Flores and others who developed these anti- typhus campaigns and then led them to these areas had to do is they had to deal with the fact that this is an area pretty far from centers of power. It's an area where um, I would say the majority of the people did not speak Spanish um, and spoke one of the many Maya languages. It's an area that was not used to having colonial presence there. Uh, and so um, that plus the, the fact that the typhus epidemic kind of stopped and started many times over a 10 to 12 year period um, made this a pretty difficult, challenging place to uh, to enact these anti-typhus campaigns. So when, when they arrived there, what were 
the the pre what were the ways in which Amerindians were already treating typhus? So I mentioned the Temescal, um, and those that was definitely one of the kinds of spaces, and I would say uh, that that was kind of a key space because at least the way colonial officials talk about it in the sources, um, a community um, would have not just one Temescal, but there'd be many. And in fact, a lot of houses had them. These are small buildings. They're pretty easy to construct. Um, the Temescal works by uh, people removing their clothing and going in and basically having a hot steam bath. Um, herbs could be burned. Um, multiple people could go in there at one time. Um, so that was sort of one way that people treated typhus, um, as well as just tried to mediate the symptoms. Um, another way was bloodletting. Uh, bloodletting for medicinal purposes. Um, Mayas had specialists, medical specialists known as curanderos sangradores. These are basically healer bloodletters, um, both men and women who were skilled in letting blood um, for different kinds of therapeutic uses. And so for typhus, this is one of those as well. Um, and um, both of those things um, uh, were active ways that uh, that um, people in the highlands Mesoamericans in the highlands were um, were using um, using kind of traditional I don't even want to use the word traditional but we were drawing on medical Mesoamerican medical cultures from those regions as well as like adding on to this botanical knowledges uh, and uses of materials uh, and plants and things like that from the highlands that are helping them mediate that um, when the Spanish um, expeditions come in or when the colonial expeditions come in, um, they have other kinds of ideas about what, for example, the space of healing should be or space of treatment. Um, and so um, they would like to they try to set up um, these colonial campaigns. They try to set up um, basically uh, they I would call them temporary uh, epidemic hospitals, but they would take over the Cabildo or the city council building or some other large building and try to put um, people together in this building so they could be treated not in the home, uh, but they could be treated in all together and they could be monitored. Uh, these buildings might often be ringed with um, with soldiers or militiamen who would be keeping patients from uh, seeing their family members and things like that. Um, so much treatment went on in the home. And so um, they also did a house to house inspection so they could both keep track of who was sick, but also um, uh, make sure families weren't hiding, um, hiding their six family members. There's also quite a lot of conflict over bloodletting. Um, if you know anything about Mesoamerican culture, blood is as a substance is a, is a, is a very ritually charged substance, it, uh, both in terms of um, the way that um, uh, um, Maya kings and queens took on ritual authority and communicated with um, an the ancestors or the supernatural world um, in positive ways, but it could also be seen as a way that um, blood knowledges could be used to, ca to, ca to cast illness as well. Um, and so um, when you have the Spanish, the colonial campaigns coming in, um, advocating bloodletting, not only for the sick, but also for the well and um, having, um, uh, you know, uh, these, uh, they wouldn't necessarily be med medical doctors, but they would be like barber surgeons that were part of the campaigns come in and bloodlet from places that are different parts of the body um, or for different lengths of time, those those um, points became a uh, uh, very um, uh, point for conflict um, during this uh, during these campaigns. 
And what about local officials? Uh, what are and, and priests? Uh, what is their role, uh, both in the persistence of the the older practices and and you know how those were accepted locally and uh, once the campaign comes, what's the role of local officials in um, you know in, in 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 bringing this all to fruition? Yeah, um, I find priests very interesting. I'm I'm not surprised that they're active both in Enlightenment cultures, but also in, in local cultures. Um, but uh, uh, but it's that how medicine and religion intertwine is very interesting. Um, so priests who are again members of these religious orders, often the only representative of colonial authority, kind of in a parish, um, both. They, they, they can act as um, advocates for local communities. Um, they can act as intermediaries to provide um, translation, both um, you know, linguistic translation as well as cultural translation between communities and these medical campaigns of outsiders who are coming from the capital. Um, they also provide a lot of information and reporting to um, regional officials, these are alcalde mayores. I would just call them like governors or something like that. These would be um, European uh, in charge of the area. So they would often like warn when an outbreak occurred, um, so that um, so that a campaign could be sent to assess whether or not it actually was an epidemic disease and to take to take uh, responsibility for it. So priests uh, are also um, have um, you know they're the ones who know who in the community might be used for, for example, the Spaniards don't have enough inoculators or they need people to, they need local indigenous people and others to help them implement um, aspects of their campaign. So the priest can also provide information about who the men in the local community are that might also be able to work as barber healers um, or um, other kinds of, uh, other kinds of ways. Um, one of the things that's kind of interesting, though, um, that I, I uh, talk about here is that um, priests also, because of their isolation, um, also don't pay attention or ignore, like willfully ignore certain kinds of um, medical ritual practices. And I think the example of the caves um, in this chapter for me was a pretty exciting uh, uh, thing to find about how um, caves became this place where um, indigenous elites were able to um, draw on longer Mesoamerican traditions of um, practices that were designed to protect the health of the community as well as the health of individuals. Yeah, and you explain uh, the story of a particularly interesting one. Uh, I think it's called Baku. Mm -hmm. And um, so this is a, a ritual site that uh, is you know, potentially hundreds of years old. How did it persist this far after, you know, through 270 years of colonial rule or so. Right. And I also will say that uh, through a colleague of mine in Guatemala, I found out this summer that that site is still an active site, which is really interesting. Um, so anyway, this is a, this is, Baku is a, a sort of ritual, a ritual site. It was also known as La Cueva or the cave, even though it was a building, it was away from town, but it was a building that housed um, uh, sort of the important kind of founding ancestors of the community. And this was a site that um, 
apparently priests had known about for a number of years. A couple people had tried to find it. Um, a couple of the priests had tried to find it, but were either threatened by um, local um, members of the, the town that it was located in, or something miraculous would happen in a way that would push back um, a, the priests from being actually able to find it. So for example, there was a huge whirlwind storm when one priest went out to find it, and um, he ha- he was forced to turn back. Um, so, so this was... Uh, uh, at least what I can find out from colonial sources, which again we have to sort of keep in mind that um, this comes this comes to light during the typhus epidemic. Um, the alcalde mayor of this region, so he's the the kind of governor of the region, wants to take a really strong um, uh, have a strong response against it. Um, it. Seems to be a place where during Maya uh, the sort of traditional Maya calendar yearly calendar, um, there were different elites from um, the important lineages of the town that would go out and perform certain kinds of animal sacrifices, um, offerings of copal, which is a, a resin. It's a, it's a, a resin that's central to, to Mesoamerican um, uh, practices. Um, and ocote, which is another kind of um, a, a nice, lovely smelling kind of wood that people also burned as offerings. Um, apparently there were images of these founding uh, mother and father of the area as well there. Uh, and so, um, uh, after um, the, the the story ta- talks about how after various threats and actual fin- physical punishment of the indigenous elites, finally somebody one of the one of the local um, members of, of that town decides to show the span to show the um, the authorities where where the where this this baku is, um, and so they proceed to go out there and and say that they knock everything down, they knock down the building, they. Aren't able to find the what they call idols. They're not able to find the images of this found, founding mother and father. Yeah, and so I mean, it, it sort of appears that medical intervention here was working as an impetus to undertake what had been a, a long desired initiative for uh, a anti-idolatry initiative. Yeah, I, I I think that's totally right on, and um, I mean I find that really fascinating um, that. Um, almost like a, a, a second effort to kind of move into the highlands that through these official medical campaigns, all of a sudden certain kinds of, with, with the tensions of epidemic death, um, uh, with the tensions of conflicts over, uh, over medical practices and cultures, that these sites come, come to, come to, come into the open, um, Again, like I said, with Temescalis, I, I don't remember reading anything about them in colonial descriptions, you know, except in sort of vague ways um, before the 1770s. So, but all of a sudden, once the campaigns move into this area, they're 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 everywhere. Apparently, um, same thing with these these caves, these ritual spaces. Um, I think I I did I looked at two of the an actual cave as well um, in Santa Eulalia um, in depth. But apparently there are a number of these caves and other places that were um, in the landscape away from communities, but that still served as as places of Maya ritual practices. And also, I guess one of the things that um, is important to keep in mind that medicine and, and, and what we would call religion for for the Maya um, were um, not separated out. They weren't. They were seen as intertwined. Um, we sort of separate them out, and I separate them out to analyze. But um, but those things were very very much um, intertwined and kind of part of keeping the world in balance. Um, was about um, uh, thinking about agricultural balance, environmental balance, uh, medical balance, both of, and of both individuals and communities. Yeah. 
And I suppose we could kind of almost say the same for the Spaniards in which, you know, these medical campaigns are affecting long-held anti-idolatry uh, plans. Um, right, right. So anyway, to move on, uh, the next chapter, Constructing Colonial Fetuses, this is uh, chapter three, is uh, perhaps even more fascinating. Um, I, I suppose, first of all, can you explain what the title is referring to in the Constructing? This, this chapter, um, uh, I had, the, I had a hard, harder time fitting this chapter in, even though I, I think I could have done a better job at sort of showing how this, um, this, this idea fits in with the larger um, public health campaigns. But basically, starting in the 1780s, um, Guatemala, Guatemala's president, a man named Jose Domasi Valle, um, enacted a, a law saying that um, any woman who dies while pregnant or is suspected of being pregnant, a, a cesarean must be performed on her after she dies so that a fetus can be baptized. Um, this is feeding, this idea is an idea that's not just local to Guatemala, but is kind of circulating through Europe and the Americas um, based on um, the work of uh, especially um, Francisco Candiamila, who is a priest working in Sicily. Um, and he is working in a, what's a kind of a colonial area as well and thinking about, well, what happens to fetuses who die in utero when a mother dies, say, from an epidemic disease or some other kind of illness? And um, the idea is that... Um, uh, that, that that fetus will die without being baptized and so will go into limbo. Um, and so begins to kind of generate this idea that something must be done about this. Um, this kind of um, idea or concern for fetuses in colonial situations is intersecting with new enlightenment advancements in embryology, in um, uh, using uh, the microscope, for example, to be able to see what happens at conception, to see when life occurs. Um, and over, if you look at the history of the church, of the Christian church and then the Catholic church over time, there's many debates about when life begins. Does it begin at conception? Does it begin at the quickening? Um, there's there's a, a number of kind of back and forth about this. But somehow that that sort of Kangiamila writing about this at the same time that you're seeing these um, uh, enlightenment advances with um, embryology and reproduction, um, uh, there becomes a kind of consensus among many among a key group of people saying, that life begins at conception. If that's the case, then um, that we that um, now we have something called the cesarean operation. We can use surgical techniques to open the body of a deceased pregnant woman, extract the fetus at whatever stage of development, and perform a baptism on them to um, uh, to ensure that they go to heaven. Uh, this kind of fits into kind of what the colonial state's key effort is kind of from the start of colonialism. Um, in addition to kind of economic concerns, um, this fits into this idea that part of what's motivating um, colonialism, Spanish colonialism in the first place, is to uh, convert souls to Christianity. Um, and so, again, kind of nicely fits into the anti-idolatry aspects uh, of, the, of, the, uh, uh, of the public health campaigns as well. And so, who who performs the cesareans, uh, and, and how? You know, this is a new a new procedure. How are they trained, and uh, where are they done, and on whom? Yeah. So, um, I will say that there's um, a lot of information. Um, 
prescription, prescriptive information handbooks on how to perform them and why to perform them. And then there's the issue of the um, of finding archival evidence that they were actually performed. Um, I can uh, talk about, so maybe I'll talk about this in two ways. Um, so one of the things that's circulating at the time are um, uh, handbooks for um, how to perform cesarean, uh, first of all, uh, yeah, basically postmortem cesarean handbooks. They have two aspects to them. But first of all, they're also often written by priests. They have two aspects of them the justification for why they should occur. So the kind of religious justification, um, this discussion about what happens to a fetus after a pregnant woman dies and things like that. And then the what I would call the practical or surgical aspects of it, which is how to conduct it. Um, and so the handbooks are typically have both kinds of information together in there, which again, nicely, I think, illustrates the way that it's impossible to separate medicine and religion um, in the, even in this Enlightenment era. Um, so uh, for Guatemala, um, uh, after the president of the Audiencia enacts this law to perform, that cesareans must be performed on deceased women for fetal baptism, um, one of the, arch, the archbishop follows with a, a sort of religious law that supports this political law. And one of the archbishops, um, I would call him like, not really an assistant, but um, a helper or um, uh, somebody who's working with him, writes his own postmortem cesarean manual, which is uh, in support of both the political and and religious um, laws. Um, his name is a man named Jose, Pedro Jose de Arese, and he publishes his um, postmortem cesarean manual in 1786. Um, and again, it kind of fits this model of um, uh, sort of First half is the religious justification for why, and the second half is is how. Um, in terms of who performs these, how they're trained, and and where, um, there's definitely when we think of medical hierarchies, there's definitely um, an idea that in ideal situations, a medical surgeon, a licensed medical doctor, somebody like this should perform postmortem cesareans. But the manuals um, in the the how-to manuals and the part uh, in the second half are all kind of tailored to. Um, they talk about having kind of clear instructions about how to perform one so that anybody can perform one, so that a barber surgeon could perform one, so that a priest could perform one. Um, and it, there's an expectation that priests would be performing them in part because um, uh, they are the ones ministering to indigenous populations, often in missions or in areas uh, far away from any kind of Spanish centers. Um, as they also expected that um, female midwives would perform them as well, because they are the ones who are usually present when there might be um, a miscarriage or um, a difficult birth that would relate would um, uh, uh, where the outcome would be ma maternal death. Uh, that leads me to two questions. Is one is whether this changes significantly the relationship of the colonial state to women and women's bodies, and uh, whether or not this significant, you know, actually did significantly impact women's experience, because presumably they're dead by the time this happens. Yeah, um, one of the things that's really interesting with the manuals and in a way that I talked about with all of these kinds of manuals is a lot of, there's a lot of emphasis on, um, uh, the fact that, um, family members, um, and others in a community don't want this being performed on their mothers or wives or daughters. Um, and so, um, 
practice lots of kinds of subterfuge or just um, remove indigenous uh, pregnant women to other areas so they can give birth in private. Um, also, um, women themselves um, are described as being crafty and being able to hide their pregnancies from priests. So you have these rules about um, uh, uh, priests must ask women in the confessional whether or not they're pregnant and that, and that it's woman's duty to tell a priest when she's pregnant so that if she do, if something does happen with her pregnancy, that um, that someone can step in and perform the postmortem cesarean. So um, so definitely in terms of surveillance, um, both kind of at the individual level of the priest relationship with with women of childbearing age, but also with um, local communities, um, uh, families and others um, uh, relationship with um, indigenous um leaders as well as priests and other colonial leaders, there's definitely this idea of surveillance and penalties of excommunication and all and other kinds of um, penalties if, for example, a woman dies while pregnant and no one notifies the appropriate political or uh, religious or medical officials. So, and again, it's really hard to tell in practice how, how much, if anybody was excommunicated, I haven't... Um, uh, haven't come across um, uh, examples of that yet. It doesn't mean they're not out there, but I, I didn't run across any for Guatemala. But but um, but what is clear is that the postmortem cesareans that did occur um, primarily um, were practiced on indigenous women who died um, in particular in missions. Um, so these are colonial spaces um, that are regulated where there are priests available uh, around. Um, there's often a um, if it's a if it's a if it's a militarized mission like they have in the Paten area, which is where some of my examples come from, there's also um, military officials as well as military surgeons there as well. Um, so in a series of postmortem cesareans that I've been able to uncover that actually occurred, uh, occurred in mission communities in and around the Paten area, this, this uh, Lake uh, Petenitsa um, in the early 1800s. Um, and this was um, interesting because this is a site of the last Maya kingdom that wasn't militarily defeated until uh, until the early 1700s, the Itzamaya. Um, and so it remained in, through the 18th century, a militarized zone with um, a sort of the sort of missionary fort and then other missionary communities in and around the lake. And so, um, so I would say, especially in these kinds of areas like missions um, and uh, areas with a strong religious presence, these would be the areas where um, you know the colonial state would be able to both the religious part of it and the and the political part of it would be able to um, uh, you know affect women's experiences um, and be able to kind of use different kinds of surveillance or coercion techniques on women themselves or on their family members, um, and so would affect their lives. In more remote communities, um, you know, I would say that there, there are points of where it would affect women's individual women's lives or family lives. And, and um, one of the things that I was able to uncover again with these um, anti-typhus manuals, anti-smallpox manuals, anti-measles manuals, there's always a section in there that talks about what should be done that a postmortem cesarean must be performed if a, a woman dies from one of these epidemic diseases while pregnant, or even if they think she's pregnant. Um, so, um, so that would be um, less of a kind of constant surveillance, but but kind of when a, a epidemic outbreak was occurring and there was a, a colonial medical campaign there, that would be a time I think of 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 um, of when that that impact would be felt. But I think it's also important to keep in mind that. Um, 
again, Mesoamerican um, curanderas and parteras. These are healers and midwives have long had their own tradition of childbirth and things like that. They were well able to, um, you know, escape or go to a different community or hide pregnancies and things like that. So um, that part, though, is harder to uncover in the documents. So uh, but I also just want to emphasize it's important not just to think of this as sort of a top down structural thing, but that some of that resistance we're just not going to be able to find in the documents. But we expect is there in part because um, uh, the manual shows such a concern with with this kind of uh, practice. Right, right. And, and so then in chapter four, you know, as opposed to this sort of resistance, we, we get a dynamic more of negotiation uh, between colonial officials and, and local villages and indigenous communities over, uh, at, at this point, this is the, the inoculation against smallpox. Um, mm-hmm. Can you uh, explain a little bit of what's going on here? Yeah, I think kind of one of the broader processes that's going on um, and that as colonial medical campaigns, public health campaigns moving into indigenous areas are kind of developing um, and fine tuning is how to um, gain um, to, to create constructive relationships with indigenous elites. Um, If we think about a tributary Maya town, indigenous Maya town in the highlands, this is a legal category. And so um, this is a legal category. These would be Maya towns um, that um, uh, owe um, tribute in the form of labor or money to colonial um, authorities as part of the colonial kind of order. But in return, and they also are, sorry, they are also um, uh, required to kind of practice Christianity and things like that. But in return, they're allowed some level of self-government, which, and this is kind of in the form of a uh, city council, it's called a cabildo, um, where um, indigenous Uh, members of this community can elect political leaders. These are usually from kind of the most important lineages in the town and they would occupy different different aspects of um, of uh, this kind of local political authority. Uh, And so um, if we look at kind of strategies uh, that that the colonial state has used from the start uh, of conversion to Catholicism or Christianity um, and maintenance of it that depended on priests and others being able to develop good working relationships with colonial elites who would then hopefully police their local population. So the idea is to kind of convert um, the elites first, and then they could be used as examples for the rest of society. And and I I think that that we really see this process going on and kind of being recreated and uh, fine-tuned in these medical situations as well, really working to, as much as possible, gain the cooperation um, where possible um, as these campaigns move into local communities of uh, of these indigenous cabildo elites, these indigenous city council members. The priests were often very instrumental in helping facilitate this, um, again, as linguistic translators, but also cultural translators, and in identifying who were considered um, easy to work with, or they, um, they often these would be called indios ladinos, which um, would mean like Native peoples who were Hispanicized to some degree, who were bilingual, um, and those people would be used uh, both to kind of ease introduction of colonial um, medical techniques to help with any kinds of resistance or rebellion um, against um, uh, the different strategies um, being used, and um, even to teach um, these some of these these men, and they were primarily men, as far as I can tell, um, inoculation methods and later new vaccination methods. Um, 
And, and to what degree did this change the method itself? That's a great question. Some of that is not, um, uh, some of that is just hard. Is it, well, I'll just say it's quite hard to find that information out in, in the sources. But uh, we can say that um, it does show that these colonial medical campaigns depended on in indigenous or Mesoamerican medical labor in order to make sure that these um, these their the, the kind of prescribed treatments were carried out, um, which is uh, probably not surprising given given the conditions here, but is surprising in other ways that um, that indigenous Mesoamerican practitioners, local barbers, um, healers, curanderas, all these would be used um, to help um, implement these campaigns, um, and so we have examples of. Um, uh, let's just say inoculation campaigns in this chapter of uh, the, the, the doctor and other specialists moving into the, the community, having them call everybody to the central square and showing um, certain people how to perform inoculations, watching them perform inoculations, and then to ensure that they um, know how to correctly do it. And then um, leaving and moving to another community, knowing that there were people present that remained in the community who could perform um, inoculations. And some communities eagerly, you know, did this. Um, there's one community, I believe it was San, San Juan Ishkoi, um, if I'm remembering correctly, but um, they had this really interesting exchange with uh, uh, with the president of the Audiencia where they write to, to him and say, we have seen how, um, you know, how um, destructive smallpox is in our neighboring communities. And we've also seen this another community, a nearby community where inoculation really prevented mass death that we're used to. We would like to participate participate in that. And um, uh, we would like to offer, you know, offer you um, uh, cooperation in this regard. And so there's this really interesting kind of exchange of letters between them um, that kind of sort of cement this this kind of alliance um, that is in the colonial state's interest to do as well, because then that community can um, kind of serve as as advocates to other communities where that, that they have links with and that people other people in the area can kind of see, um, at least from the colonial state's perspective, that inoculation is, is an Effective strategy. Yeah, and so then these same sorts of um, networks and rituals uh, and local connections get used uh, later when Edward Jenner's vaccine comes to Guatemala, right? Right. Um, right. Again, um, you know, I feel like one of the things that's interesting to me is looking at how each campaign whether it's typhus or measles or smallpox or introducing a new uh, smallpox therapy of vaccination with, with cowpox fluid, the, um, the, the proto-medicato and then the, the colonial officials that are moving into these indigenous areas are uh, building on their knowledge and creating new knowledge. So they're kind of not just kind of taking one manual and using it all the way through, but it's one way the manuals are interesting um, as a way to kind of gauge how um, officials on the ground who have to, the blood letters, the inoculators, the vaccinators are having to uh, adjust about it, how they talk about um, ways that they, they can adjust um, and work with communities. And so um, uh, they're, uh, they're building on networks that they've already previously developed um, from earlier 
um, campaigns. Um, they already might be familiar with local elites that they've worked with before. Uh, they are, might be familiar with medical specialists in these different communities that have been receptive to um, to colonial campaigns. They might also know who the troublemakers are as well, so they might be able to might need to contain them. Um, they also um, the colonial these colonial um, campaigns also would maybe adopt or adapt rituals to um, uh, Mesoamerican rituals that they knew were maybe not destructive, but bring them uh, into uh, into how into these official handbooks um, as being a way that could ease um, uh, new in, the introduction of, of in this case um, vaccination to uh, to, um, to to indigenous communities. Uh, uh, great, thank you. And, and so, you know, one matter that we haven't touched up on yet, but is an important part of the book, is the degree to which colonial policies you know, in the colony uh, preceded uh, imperial policies coming out of Madrid. Right, um, and that's one of the things I um, I tried to emphasize throughout the the book as well. And I I actually um, I mean it's interesting that it happens in Guatemala, but I don't think that's exceptional. I think a lot of um, uh, we see a, a lot of this over um, different in Mexico and Cuba and other places in Peru as well um, in different ways. Um, I think one of the aspects of the Enlightenment era is the circulation of information of people of paper media, um, the interest in new developments in medicine. And science, these are all um, kind of happening um, in ways that aren't um, directed by um, the imperial state. Um, so uh, people like Jose Flores or um, uh, Narciso Esparagosa or other kind of important medical practitioners in colonial Central America don't need to wait for, um, for uh, royal um, ideas or, or prescriptions for when things should occur. They can actually read themselves um, what's going on. They can read pamphlets from other areas. They can talk to people who've circulated or lived in France or, um, or New Orleans, for example, um, and who have come to Guatemala, and they can use those to, um, to kind of come at it themselves. And again, within this Enlightenment culture, this idea of the humanitarian responsibility of colonial elites um, to colonize peoples, this kind of fits into that that idea as well. Um, and I think that um, for me, one uh, one of the interesting, especially interesting aspects of that was a search for the vaccine fluid, the cowpox that Jenner had, um, you know, had had sort of shown would. Um, would be uh, safer to use than using human smallpox matter, which is used in inoculation, and that um, would have um, less um, uh, detrimental effects. It would be um, on on uh, being used on bodies as well, and so um, that that ends up being one of the uh, a big section where the elites in Guatemala kind of pull together money and they write to people they know in Cuba, in Mexico, in New Orleans, um, and in Spain to try to get um, some of this, this vacuna, some of this cowpox, so they can use to begin inoculation. Um, they start this around 1800, 1801, when a new epidemic is coming through, a new smallpox epidemic is coming through, um, realizing that the previous epidemic had been in the 1790s and it was pretty localized. And so they're worried that um, this new epidemic this new smallpox epidemic that's starting to kind of emerge and ramp up in 1801, 1802 could be particularly dire. Um, so they send, um, when they hear of an arrival of, um, 
of uh, uh, cowpox fluid in, for example, um, uh, Veracruz. They uh, send word to local elites there and they give them money so that they can send, actually by courier service, by mail service, they can send um, vacuna fluid um, to Central America so that they can reanimate it and then test it out. Um, they mostly test it out on the sons and daughters of local elites to see if they can um, get it to work and then develop their own supply of, of cowpox. You know, one of the things uh, when we look at a, a sim- the same period of time in, in, say, colonial Mexico is the degree to which many of the people involved in these sort of campaigns uh, become early nationalists and uh, or proto-nationalists and become important figures in the, uh, you know, in the Mexican pantheon. To what degree does this tell us anything about the 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 um, about Guatemalan independence? Yeah. Um, I do kind of have a concluding section where I talk about how a number of the the leaders, the sort of the instrumental um, medical doctors um, become first through these medical campaigns, important leaders in late colonial society, but then, but later often um, become important um, either advocates for independence. Um, They begin to kind of write the um, new um, constitution and other kinds of legal uh, prescriptions for um, what became first independent Central America and later the different Central American states. And, and I think this is um, interesting because I think that um, in the late, in late colonial society, um, medical campaigns, the prestige of them, um, their success to some degree in implementing especially smallpox vaccination across a huge area uh, and population of colonial society um, allows them entry into into the kind of elite sectors of colonial society where they may not have been before, um, kind of on, on par with some of the important economic and political and religious elites um, uh, that had previously occupied these spaces. Um, and so there's, um, and so there's, uh, some of these people are then able to, um, uh, to to kind of use that as a way to um, kind of entry into kind of more larger kind of colonial and then early national uh, leadership roles um, as well. Well, thank you very much. Is there anything we haven't covered about your book yet that uh, you'd like to make sure to mention? I think we've covered a lot, so hopefully that's plenty. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Um, so, Martha, what – where are you going now? What is your next project? Uh, I have two projects that I'm working on right now. I'm um, I'm actually working on um, postmortem cesareans for fetal baptism. I'm doing a collaborative project with um, Adam Warren, who works on Peru, and Zeb Todorici, um, who uh, works on Mexico. And uh, we are doing a project that looks at um, postmortem, the implementation of postmortem cesarean for fetal baptism. Um, Uh, empire-wide across the Spanish and Portuguese empires. And we're thinking about it not only broadly kind of empire-wide, but also thinking about it as an early history of cesarean operations that hasn't been fully explored or connected to what we would think of as cesarean operations that were um, conducted for to to save the life of a pregnant woman or to to save the life of the the fetus um, as as during stressful situations of childbirth. So um, so we're we're um, uh, Adam Warren has done some work on looking at postmortem cesareans for fetal baptism in Peru, um, and so kind of using all our expertise, we're, we'll be spending this next year going to archives um, in um, uh, Mexico, in uh, Central America, in Argentina, Ecuador, um, also in the Philippines, um, as well as looking at um, Brazil to 
kind of see what are some of the, the commonalities of this practice and how does it change over time? And, and really, how does it link up with um, uh, what becomes the more modern form of cesarean operations where, um, where a woman can survive a postmortem, can survive a cesarean section uh, kind of that happens, tends to happen more in the second half of the 19th century. So we'll, we'll so that's kind of where I'm going with that. And the second um, uh, project I'm working on is I, I became really interested in after with the medicinal beetle used to raise blisters, used in inoculation campaigns, I became very interested in insects. Um, I also became interested in, in particularly locusts because um, they seem to show up in a lot of the records in areas, especially in the highlands, with high um, epidemic death rate. Often these were preceded or followed by uh, locust infestations that caused um, hunger and, um, uh, and and food shortages. And so um, this kind of got me thinking about insects. And so um, just kind of writing a book, thinking about um, insects, both productive and destructive insects, um, and in particular efforts to both kill insects um, that are seen as destructive like locusts, but also efforts to kind of keep insects healthy that are seen as productive in colonial society. So honeybees, for example, or um, or silkworms um, that are um, used in colonial society early. And so looking at um, kind of some of the illnesses that these productive insects can come down with and, and ways that uh, people tried to keep these insects healthy and reproductive um, and robust. Well, that uh, sounds like a fascinating project. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's been fun so far. I think I've taken enough of your time. Thank you so much, Martha, for being on the show today. Thank you for having me, Lance. It's been a great conversation. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.